0: Yeah, so it looks like we are once again a lock and a load for another installment, another episode, ladies and gentlemen, of The Conspiracy Farm, where we, of course, don't start the conspiracies. We just add a little water. As always, Jeffrey Wilson and uh, my partner in crime, UFC Hall of Famer Pat Milicic, and today we got a score. You don't get much more official than the guests we have on today. This gentleman has spent a lot, you know, over three decades serving his country in the capacity of with the Federal Bureau of Investigations, Um, Wow, the list is endless of uh, this man's ascent to eventually becoming the Assistant Director of Counterintelligence. Correct me if I'm wrong, sir. Um, Wow, this guy's resume is quite, quite impressive. Uh, Mr. David Zadie is joining us today. How are you today, sir?
1: Hi, very good. Very good, thank you.
0: Well, like I said, we talked a little off-air. You are a busy man, so thank you so very much uh, for taking the time. Um, you know, coming out of Massachusetts, it looks like you got your degree from St. Michael's College in Vermont. You're an East Coast guy. What, what pushed you in the direction of, of law enforcement and getting into the FBI?
1: Well, you know, at the time, I was, uh, I was teaching chemistry and getting a master's in chemistry and coaching basketball. And I became interested in the FBI, and I actually entered into the FBI under what was then known as the science program. I received my master's in chemistry in August of 1972. I came into the FBI in September of 1972, and I can honestly say I haven't seen a test tube since. <laughs> I mean, actually, actually now the of course the FBI is uh, with their forensic. We have a huge forensic lab. Uh, the FBI hires PhDs who are researchers in DNA uh, expertise and things of that sort. So even though there are still some agents who are involved in a science program, it has greatly evolved into an extremely professional uh, forensic science program. But that's how I entered into the FBI, and I got into it uh, uh, with that master's in chemistry, and it's been a great ride ever since for 34 years in the Bureau. And two of those years I spent at the counterintelligence at the CIA, in charge of their counterintelligence group and deputy director of their counterintelligence center. And later on, President Bush appointed me to be the national counterintelligence executive. And then after 9-11, I became the assistant director of counterintelligence as the Bureau tried to remake itself in national security and trying to push itself forward uh, in order to have a world-class operation in fighting both intelligence operations but also terrorism.
2: It's so the, how did how did things switch from how did things switch from from chemistry and forensics into um, counterintelligence for you? How did that go about?
1: Well, that's a great question because you know when you all agents all future agents go down to Quantico uh, now it's about twenty weeks of training and from there you branch out into your so-called areas of expertise. But in the beginning of my career, uh, we all have what we call a first office that you go to. And in my case, it was Mobile, Alabama, which was very interesting coming from Massachusetts. I always thought that Alabama was a football team. I didn't realize I was going to be stationed down there. Uh, But it was a great experience. And what you normally do, uh, I was assigned to criminal investigations for the most part, organized crime, violent crime, and so on, to get your, your feet wet, if you will, to work with experienced agents and to move on from there. And then my second office was Washington Field Office, where I was a street agent, and it was there that I was eventually assigned to work counterintelligence. I started off working uh, against the East Germans, but then most of my career switched over to work against uh, what was then the Soviet Union, the KGB, uh, and uh, from that point on, that was my primary focus. Although when I was assigned to San Francisco, I was there for 12 years, Eventually became the assistant director for counterintelligence and terrorism. But along the way, I supervised uh, two violent crime squads, one in San Jose, one in San Francisco, and then I had uh, organized Vietnamese crime in uh, San Jose. And this was after the wall had come down in 1989, and we had a little switch in focus from counterintelligence, but of course, eventually worked our way back into it. Uh, and the other particular assignments i had i mentioned uh as we realized that the threats if anything were getting greater uh and i would say now we even face greater threats from both terrorism and the counterintelligence perspective than we ever faced during those years
0: right so when you talk about counterintelligence that's uh i mean you're a spy hunter or you were a spy hunter essentially correct
1: well that that that's one way of looking at it that's exactly right uh, you know, whether it's Bob Hansen or Aldrich James or the Walker spy case or things of that sort, those are the type of things we're going after. But the, the work of counterintelligence is much more detailed and elaborate than just catching spies, although that is a primary responsibility of the FBI is to weed out and find those Americans who are traitors to the United States and would give away our secrets. But, you know, when we first started out working against, say, just the Russians, I was a very symmetrical threat. So you knew exactly who the enemy was, what they were coming after, usually classified information, military, economic and political. But the world changed as, as we move forward. And, of course, now uh, we have what we call or I would call an asymmetrical threat. And let's stick with counter with counterintelligence. Now we're dealing with multiple countries, China, Russia, even some of our allies, who not only try to steal our classified information, but are more importantly now going after intellectual and proprietary information, which is the core of what all of our eco- our economy is based on. All of our vertical markets are based on that. So we have the Chinese or we have the Russians, or we have others trying to come after our corporations, steal their intellectual and proprietary information, and get a leg up in the economic uh, wars around the world. And I'd say the United States probably loses thirty billion dollars a year, and that per- from that particular threat, while at the same time the threat of espionage is still there. Uh, But more importantly, all of our adversaries now use what I call multiple collection redundant platforms. They don't just use their intelligence officers anymore. They don't just use their collection platforms of embassies and consulates, but they now come after us using visitors, scientists, researchers, uh, business partnerships, any platform they can see that can get them access to the type of information they're looking for. That's very.
2: Wow.
0: So much now, going on there. When go-
2: yeah. When going, when going back to spy hunting, as Jeffrey put it, how would you, how would you troll for them? I mean, is that a lot of electronic? Is it in, I mean, could it be classified as entrapment almost that, that, uh, no, no, no. I levels? mean, what you, No, what
1: usually happens, I mean, if. There's a variety of ways of of looking for spies or penetrations within the government. Usually there are indicators out there. For example, uh, some of them are very, very prominent. Uh, We knew during the Aldrich James, Bob Hansen particular period, uh, we were losing assets and sources that we had. uh, Operations were being wrapped up so that when you start evaluating what's going on, you go, "Uh uh-oh, we might have a mole here or somebody within the intelligence community or somebody within uh, a particular industry, for example, if, if uh, a corporation has lost its intellectual and proprietary, and now they have competitors that are beating them uh, to death, if you will, in the marketplace. But with the spy hunters, it, it can be a variety of things. It, it can come through the monitoring of intelligence officers, the monitoring of what, what the Russians are doing, the monitoring of what the Chinese are doing. That leads you to an indicator that you have a problem and that there are spies out there. It also comes, Pat, as you you were alluding to, from sources and methods that exist out there, either human, electronic, or whatnot, that gives you an idea that there's somebody out there. So uh, even after we arrested Ames back when, we still saw things being uh, wrapped up, and the Russians were still on top of all of our operations, and we knew that there had to be somebody else out there. And so then you start what turned out in this particular case to be a multiple-year investigation to finally uh, result in the arrest and eventual conviction of Bob Hansen, who was an FBI agent. And the same thing goes in terrorism. You can, you can branch this over, and you have the same type of operations going on in terrorism, which are very much mirror or are similar to uh, some of the uh, spy cases or counterintelligence cases that we have, except in that case of terrorism, the results can be you know, terrorist operations and, and the deaths of many people, uh, whereas spy versus spy, you're not usually running into that particular situation unless you're involved in a war or something of that sort.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. and it's interesting, most of these but platforms, I've, a lot of what you're talking about is, is the Internet and the use of the Internet. And the, this, I mean, literally, oh, we all know the cyber war has been going on for some time, but oh, in these oh. last few months we all act like or the world seems to act like Donald Trump invented the Internet and this concept of cyber warfare, it's been going on a very long time. Why do you think they're now playing that card as if, you know, I, I don't know the veracity of the whole Russian role, et cetera, et cetera, but to me it seems kind of uh, smokescreenish, if you will, well, just something to throw up as if, you know, it's nothing new under right, the sun as it like relates that, to the cyber war. Sorry.
1: No, that's a, a, that's a tremendous point you just made. Uh, and I, I had mentioned it, but part of those redundant collection platforms is, is Now cyber cyber has become a huge problem, a huge problem with regards to people individually, a huge problem for corporations, a huge problem for the government. And when you look at cyber attacks, uh, you know, one thing I, every time I got briefed by our cyber people, I used to always come home and tell my wife, destroy all our credit cards, destroy our computers. Destroy the telephone. We're never going on anything again. I mean, this thing is absolutely ridiculous. Wow. And usually the bad guys are one step ahead of the good guys uh, because it takes a while to mount your defenses and to keep them out. Uh, but cyber attacks are, are very relevant for everybody. As I said, the inv- the individual, if it gets into your bank account, or steals your identity. Corporations, if it's stealing your intellectual proprietary information. And in the government, when it's stealing... Not only your classified secrets, but your intentions, your economic strategies, uh, your, your in business, your customer list. And when you look what's going on now, the reason that it's become so prevalent uh, in the media and whatnot is because of the election and because of the uh, amount of uh, vociferous, uh, if you will, criticism it's getting from one party and the other, depending upon what side of the fence you sit on. And so what you see is that the Russians mount And I believe it is the Russians, a major campaign, probably in the beginning, not really recognizing how successful they could be. But then getting into the uh, Democratic National Committee computers and whatnot and realizing they have certain information there, which, in my opinion, I think it probably started because Putin doesn't have any loss, uh, any love loss uh, for Hillary Clinton because of the criticism when she was secretary of state of the Russian elections and what the Russians were doing, in particular what Putin was doing. So then you see this type of um, information being leaked through WikiLeaks in order to put yourself kind of a straw man in between what you're doing and get the information out. But at the same time, I think what people have to be very, very careful about is one of the great operations within intelligence communities is disinformation. Mm. If I can get information out there, it doesn't matter whether it's true or it's not. If you believe it, that's all that matters because then you have to counter that particular information.
0: There's a lot of that.
1: I think there's a lot of disinformation swirling around, and what happens is it it gains a life of its own, and then you have people who have political agendas adding to it and giving just enough truth to a particular theory Hmm. that puts it out there and people start believing it. So, I mean, you know, the the whole thing now that uh, I think is being uh, disproven is that many in the Trump campaign had contacts with the Russians about helping them with the campaign. I think that most of the conclusions coming out of the intelligence community is that is not true. Now, were there contacts between Russians and Russians in the United States? Maybe some contacts between businessmen and whatnot? Yes, but they could have been very legitimate uh so you but, have yeah, to be is, that, is that you,
0: that's not inappropriate is it for like your your basically your your counterpart your russian counterpart for your your job flynn's job meet before oh you act is that inappropriate is that's that's that, that i mean there's precedent for that
1: no no that's a great point i would put it this way there are probably many kgb officers which are now F- fsb officers that are receiving incentive awards and bonuses for a job well done. I mean, <laughs> disinformation campaigns are run by all intelligence services around the world. Uh, the United States is engaged in in disinformation in certain areas, if you will, or political campaigns or whatnot, with regards to coups. I mean, usually, I mean, we look at it as we're on the side of right and might, and that that kind of justifies some of the things that we do. So, uh, and, and we usually are. We usually have the moral high ground. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, operations of this sort are conducted by intelligence services around the world. It's not unique to the Russians. It's not unique to the United States or the Chinese or the Israelis or the French or the English or whoever. Uh, these are operations that are run. Now, the problem here is you're, you're interfering uh, with the democratic process of elections within the United States. And there does come a point when you sort of step over the line of where you
2: should be acting and you're interfering in conversations by the, when we go back to the yeah. to the russians and i i don't doubt that uh, they had some hand in some of it but some intel folks were saying that i've talked to that that they believe that there were patriots within within our intel community who were releasing some of the information on hillary clinton also just because she they feared so much what what potentially could happen if she were to get in office
1: yeah we'll see that that's That's the dilemma with starting to look at sources and where information is coming from or what people believe when you don't have facts. Uh, All of the people within the intelligence community, the CIA, I spent two years there. I have many friends there. They're outstanding individuals, men and women who put their lives on a line daily, particularly in the CIA around the world and operations that you're never, ever going to hear about. Now, when you move up the ladder of the chain of command, if you will, and you get into certain positions, Uh, There can be people at the higher levels, as I would put it, who have political agendas one way or the other. And that's where all these sort of sources and little bits and pieces of information start to leak out, where people are trying to satisfy their own political agenda rather than looking at the good of what the, uh, the whole is out there. And so they become the point of focus within their own minds of that they know better, than the government or whatever. Now, we're not mm. talking about leaks, about corru- about corruption, or things of that sort. We're talking about political leaks for a political agenda. Right. And those okay. those are dangerous.
0: Well, you may have just answered my question. So one thing we talk about in the show, and it frustrates the heck out of me, sir, is oftentimes the lack of accountability, or when it is applied, it's, it seems very selective. Like you have your your Pollard's, your Hanson's, your, your Aldrich Ames's, Um, maybe there weren't big enough fish, but like you have, and this isn't a political thing for me, it really is just a right and wrong law and order thing. You have Hillary Clinton literally, literally having been proven, um, divulged negligently classified information, but nothing happens to her. Is that what you are speaking to? Like people at the top have their own political agendas and will protect her, even though she has pretty much broken the law. Well,
1: we, we get into it. Obviously, it's a very political environment and a very political situation that the FBI was heavily involved in in the investigation of the servers and whatnot that she had put in place. So uh, from my perspective, I'll be perfectly clear. There's no legitimate way that you should establish your own servers that can handle, uh, let, forget classified, just government information that is can itself be proprietary and then, get into putting classified information on it, which, again, adds to the dilemma of having that. So, first of all, there are many administrative rules and regulations violated in that particular process. And then when you get into having classified information on that server, you run into another agenda uh, of why is that there. And and then the FBI, in investigating it, uh, Comey came to the conclusion that, look, what she did was inappropriate. It was out of line. If she was in the FBI or, or if she was an employee, she'd be fired, she might be fined or whatever. But he didn't see it rising to a criminal uh, uh, situation because of intent. Now, uh, people will argue about intent and whatnot. So, in other words, the classified material got on there inadvertently. It wasn't designed to put, to protect, or to hide classified information or to distribute it, was the way he was looking at it. Now, you can argue with that point of view or whatnot. Sure. Uh, but what I'm getting at are people who come forward with leaking information uh, to discredit either Trump or, for that matter, even Hillary Clinton for their own political purposes or for their own political agenda.
0: Well, in another slice, of it seemed like missed accountability is Valerie Plame. You know, it seemed like somebody, I won't mention any names, uh, seemed to have violated the Intelligence oh. Identities Protection Act, but yet nothing happened. You talk about compromised individuals. Not only was she compromised, but people in her operations were compromised.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because when I was assistant director, that, that particular case was under uh, my direction, if you will, although not my direct investigation. The agents were handling that. Now, with Valerie Plain, first of all, you have to understand that almost everybody in Washington, D.C. knew who she was. And she wasn't. She was. And you're absolutely right about the identity of CIA officers. That is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely important that those identities be protected, not only for their own sake, but for their sources sake and for operations sake around the world. But the Valerie Plain case, the whole thing came out of the Yellow Cake investigation, which was uh, about uranium and the fact that iraq was buying that yellow cake uh, uranium from niger and if you remember it got into uh, uh president bush's uh speech that he gave and that set it off and the problem was there was a little bit of degree of truth in that too because iraq had bought uranium from or yellow cake uh prior but was not doing it at this time and as that turned out that was just two individuals one from the niger embassy and one kind of a source if you will of multiple intelligence agencies around the world who were trying to make a buck and were trying to sell this false information for $5,000, which they did, and then it got totally out of control. Now, when you come back to saying that nobody paid a price for uh, what happened there, uh, we identified who had leaked that information inadvertently in about a week or two. What happened then is we had a special prosecutor appointed, and it went on, and I believe that was Libby, right? It went to jail for lying to the FBI or mm-hmm. something. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely Didn't he right kind of take
0: the way way fall did. for Cheney, though? Wasn't that kind of that move? The, uh, You know, I don't know. I... No, I,
1: no it, it, it actually, the identification was coming out of the State Department, and it was inadvertently done in a uh, okay. uh, press conference or an interview such as this. But we kind of figured out who had done it in, in about a week or two, but then the investigation went on to make sure there weren't other parts of it that, that had been missed. And it became a, spe- a special prosecutor, if you remember, had been appointed for that investigation. Interesting. Well it's interesting you remember that.
0: I'm an old I'm not I'm not old, but you know <laughs> I'm kinda of logging the two so yeah. <laughs> some of the political nerd. <laughs> Pat, you got any questions more questions?
2: Sorry. When we uh... You know, we go to the, the Snowden case and, and WikiLeaks and all this other stuff that's going on um, with Julian right. Assange. You know, how how would you, if you were still, you know, at your highest position, how would you be desiring to deal with those those individuals?
1: Well, that's this is a great area, too, because now you're into the area, and I know uh, President Trump has been putting a big emphasis on leaks uh leaks are the bane of every single administration and any administration democratic or republican that i have been involved in becomes uh comes to a point where they hate leaks and they hate leakers because it doesn't do anybody any good again unless it's fraud or crime or or uh, moral problems or things of that sort but we're talking about leaks for political reasons snowden first of all in my opinion there's no way he's a hero. Anybody who looks at it that way is not looking at the facts. He had millions of documents that he took with him. I'm sure the Russians have bled him dry for sources, for methods, for capabilities, and things that the United States is able to do both operationally on the ground and also in its collection efforts around the world. Uh, right. Snowden should be arrested and prosecuted to the full extent of the law, in my opinion. What happens when you get to WikiLeaks and then you get to uh or whatever or for example let's get to a new york times reporter then you run into some serious concerns about the first amendment and the right of the media uh to to publish information that they've been given and usually that's where leak cases bog down is when you get between the source and the media and you need to talk to the media you need to get department of justice approval to do that if you were ever going to investigate someone in the media That's extremely complicated, and it should be. It absolutely should be because, uh, you know, we're looking at a free and open media uh, that can be the watchdog for Americans. So that becomes very, very tricky. But you would investigate it totally and fully. And Snowden, I mean, I think everybody in the intelligence community as well as the FBI and whatnot know that Snowden has committed espionage at the highest level and should be prosecuted. Now what happens eventually, who knows?
2: Yeah. No, I, I figured that would be your stance, and I'm, I'm good with that. You know, and, and the, uh, the things that go on, you know, during the Bush administration with the leaks and WikiLeaks hammering on, on the Bush administration, you know, were, were perfectly fine with the liberals. And then when a lot of the Clinton information started coming out, um, WikiLeaks was the devil. So I, I just find it kind of interesting how
1: politically driven. That's right. That switches back and forth, Pat, as you know. Uh, at one point, Comey was the biggest uh, Eagle Scout, Boy Scout that had ever come down the pike, the greatest American everybody had, anybody had ever seen. And then the same person who said that he was the devil incarnate when his positions weren't going their way. So you're absolutely right. It can depend on what side of the fence you're on. But that's why the yeah, FBI, we- uh, the FBI is absolutely important that they remain politically neutral in their investigations, that they not be influenced by politics and whatnot. And the same should imply for the CIA or any other intelligence agency, or for that matter, law enforcement agency, nor should either or any of those ever be influenced by political motivation. And from my experience, and I used to go up in the hill all the time and brief both the Senate intelligence community and the House intelligence community, senators and congressmen individually, never did I have them try to direct a particular investigation, even though they may have had a dog in the fight, all they were being, all they were being, all that was being done was they were being briefed on a particular investigation, and they knew they knew darn well that they could not offer any type of suggestion in how those investigations should go, and that's across what, the political spectrum.
2: Yeah, what do you think? You know, and I can see where um, people on the liberal side of the fence would think Comey's decision to reopen the investigation on the Clinton emails was a deliberate act. Um, to sabotage her campaign. I mean, I, I can see where they where they think that. But what was it that um, really, no. p- truly forced him to reopen that?
1: Uh, first of all, I know Jim Comey, and I, I knew I used to brief him when he was Deputy Attorney General, and I was Assistant Director. He's a, a man of extreme integrity and character. Uh, he's honest as the day is long, and whatever his motivations are, they're not political. What he had done is he had told Congress that if that investigation should reopen or if they had other information that they were going to look at or that agents were involved in investigating, that he promised them that he would let him know. Unfortunately, with the timing of it, and then, of course, the timing of it being wrapped up so fast because of the analysis of those emails and saying that they're very similar to what were on the other servers, there's nothing new here, all pointed in a direction where it gave anybody uh, the type of material where they could say, oh, he's trying to influence the the election or whatnot. From my opinion, and my opinion only, I Jim Comey is not that type of person, Or nor would, uh, in any way do I think he was trying to influence the election. He was trying to do what he had promised he would do. He was trying to maintain his integrity. Now, there's a lot of people who would say, well, it was too close to the election. None of that should have been done, and that's all open for debate. Right. Go
2: ahead, Jeff. You got some more questions? Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, Well, obviously, you know, your reign in the FBI, you know, it's been uh, various, various capacities throughout a long period of time. Somebody's story who I have found very, very fascinating, and you have to know who this person is. She uh, used to work for, I believe, the FBI or the NSA. Her name is Sabelle Edmonds. You familiar with her?
1: Uh no, uh, you better remind me.
0: She, I mean, she's quote unquote. I guess she, she was fired not too long after 9/11. She was like an FBI tra- translator to some extent. I guess she became a what they call a whistleblower. She got gagged for several years. Oh. Um, essentially, she had uncovered if, if coming out of coming out of uh, the Cold War and stuff. You were familiar with Oper- Operation Gladio, which she is contending now well. is there is a Gladio B. Um, a new phase of that, utilizing some of our allies uh, to fund and facilitate terror. And one gentleman she speaks of um, that we pretty much, under the Clinton administration, got out of Turkey, a gentleman by the name of Fetullah Gulen. He lives in, I believe, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, runs charter schools all over the world, sits on this like $20 billion foundation, and he's like a main person supposedly facilitating these madrasas and some of these terror organizations. Um, if you don't know who Sabella is, I guess I can't really ask you to opinion on that. But what are your opinions on that Gladio B um, that she contends exists?
1: Uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. To tell you the truth, that would be more in line with those who are involved with terrorism on a day-to-day basis, which was not my forte, although terrorism crossed over into my division quite a bit, and we had uh, uh, tremendous knowledge about terrorist operations. But in that particular case, I'd just be offering an opinion that uh i i wouldn't be be that comfortable with
0: sure sure well yeah some of the stuff she had said like the through the american turkish council she had been approached about being a spy and that's kind of what they do in other countries which are allies obviously you know approach certain congress senators sure. about being spies etc some of them do get compromised well that's true yeah that's I mean, it's all
1: true now yeah. i mean you know everybody every country is trying to develop humans human sources i mean if you look at it Uh, If you really want to know what's going on, you have to have human sources. I mean, that's the basis of some of the best intelligence we can get. Now, of course, your counterintelligence programs take advantage of that and try to send double agents against you to give you disinformation or or to give you false information or to lead you in the wrong directions of where you should be going. But there isn't an intelligence service in the world, including the Turks or anybody else, who doesn't try to recruit human sources and the higher up you can get those sources, the better. Or uh, sometimes it's not how high up you are, but it's what type of information you have access to. For example, with the Walker spy ring, they had access to the codes that the Navy was using uh, for their encryption and for their communication systems, and that was more important than having somebody who was an admiral or whatever because that information gave you everything from how to refuel at sea to weapon systems to where our submarines were and what they were doing. So is he out uh,
0: now? Again, Walker I think my, Is he out John Walker, is he out now?
1: Uh he oh he died. He died in prison.
0: Oh okay, okay. So I don't know why I thought he got it released.
1: So then, so then his brother died in prison also and his son is out. His son was given twenty five years as part of the deal for him to testify against Jerry Whitworth and Whitworth is still in prison.
2: Hmm. So that but was the point family operation of spying.
1: Boy, Essentially, it, yeah. was, uh, it definitely was a family of spies. And uh, the brother, Ar- uh, Arthur, you had Michael, his son, and you had John himself. And then Jerry Whitworth was a friend of the family who was doing the spying in kind of the second 10 years of the spy ring. So that was very successful. And it cost the United States billions of dollars to make up for the damage. But the point being, going back to your your point, you have to be careful of the information that people are giving you. But, yes, absolutely Every intelligence agency in the world is trying to recruit human sources. And there's a variety of ways you do that. Most of the Americans, people who have been Americans and spied for other countries that we have rested have volunteered. Uh, There's a lot of motivational factors there from from revenge to uh, Messiah complexes to feeling you're more important than other people for money uh for just a variety blackmail for a variety yeah yeah, i was gonna say blackmail seems
0: like that's a big tactic seems like they compromise into either drugs sex pictures etc
1: yeah well that that you have to that's a blackmail is not the best way to recruit somebody you really want to recruit somebody on motivational factors that go to kind of their heart and soul Uh, when you blackmail them you're not sure how long you can trust them or whatever Mm -hmm. but but it is used and you have to recognize that you need the type of individual that can be blackmailed, because if you're out and about or somebody uh, is showing you pictures of things you were doing, if if you're the type of person who asks for 25 of each of those photos to give to your friends, then you're certainly not going to be a person who can be blackmailed. So uh, it, it, it depends. It, it depends on the individual sure. and uh, how they're coming. I mean, that was part of the dossier uh concept which i think which came out which i think uh there's always a little bit of truth in it about trump but i think overall that thing was a whole bunch of baloney and disinformation uh that he was black you know could be blackmailed and all that i I think that's a lot of baloney but yes that's definitely a tactic that can be used along with several other motivational factors in fact if you're going to recruit a human being I mean, you may have psychologists or psychiatrists working with you to try to look at this person. That's why you have people around them talking to them. That's why you need all the information you can get about them to see how is it we're going to go and approach this person to work for us against their particular agency, company, or country.
2: Hmm. Okay. So and speak- going back to, going back, I'd like to talk more about terrorism and what we're dealing with today. Sure. And and how it related to when you were when you were in service and investigating terrorism and, and going and speaking with you know, say Imams at right. mosques and asking for assistance, things like that, you know, what kind of right what kind of um, were they very welcome to helping? Were they resistant? You know, how did that stuff work out?
1: No, that that's a great question because in order to really work a any for any environment that you're going to go in and try to Uh, weed out, if you will, those who would do damage to the United States either through spying or through terrorism. You need the help of the community. You know, if you see something, say something type thing. In order to do that, uh, you have to, you, you have to win their confidence. And I can remember when I was in San Francisco, uh, having the representatives of the Muslim community come into our office and sit down with all, all of our agents and to discuss with us their concerns about what we were doing or how we were doing it and to help us understand what their fears, what they thought, where we were being prejudiced or whatever in order that we could approach, approach them and their community in the best way possible without appearing to be a threat. Now, there were a lot of angry people there. There were a lot of people who thought we were way out of line, but there were also people who wanted us to understand where they were coming from and the type of prejudices that they might face themselves Uh, so I remember we took, uh, they gave all the agents a test, which was rather interesting. And the test had, uh, 50 questions and they were all, you had to identify the particular quote that either this quote or this story came from the new Testament, the Bible, uh, the old Testament or the Quran. And of course, at the end of taking them all, uh, they had all come from the Quran because the Quran is a mixture of old Testament, new Testament, and also the teachings of, uh, Mohammed. So uh, it was very interesting in working with those people. Now, there's always a degree of distrust. If there aren't a lot of uh, Muslims in the FBI or law enforcement, that is increasing. But we've always faced this challenge in the past. I mean, we had it with the Chinese community when we didn't have a lot of uh, Chinese agents, if you will, in order to deal with the community. So you have to gain that trust. That's a key component of doing it. And but at the same time, as the FBI, you understand that there are those within that community, perhaps that would do harm to the United States. There are those who would preach uh, violence or whatnot. Uh, Now, it's 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 radical Islamic terrorism. There's no doubt about it. But those are people who have co-opted, if you will, the religion, the the, uh, Muslim religion for their own purposes and literally interpret things in the Koran to an extent. That no one else would do. And out of that, we get ISIS and we get Al Qaeda and we get all of these hate groups uh, that want to do damage to the United States because of their interpretation of what that Koran says.
0: What What are your thoughts on uh, kind of, you know, the big new Brzezinski, the grand chessboard, and in speaking to utilizing. Um, these these armies as proxy forces. Yes, I do believe Islam- Islamic fundamentalism is real, and I think the pursuit of a caliphate is real as well, but aren't there, right. aren't we seeing certain states like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Pakistan, Israel, even rumors of the United States, facilitating this for their own political end, i.e., you know, Mujahideen against uh, the Russians in uh, Afghanistan, etc.? Uh,
1: well... You know, your enemy, you know, your enemy uh, is my friend, too. You know, that's my
0: enemy, my friend. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah,
1: right, right. I mean, but uh, who we support? Well, in Afghanistan, when we were supporting them against the Russians, Uh, and then, of course, uh, the Taliban becomes a problem with 9-11 and after 9-11 and using some of our own weapons against us. But at the same time, we're back in there recruiting. This is back for the first time after 9-11 into Afghanistan, and we're recruiting various Taliban tribes in order to fight with us out of the north and whatnot and to move Al-Qaeda out of there. Uh, so are the Taliban and whatnot. So then the uh, the whole thing becomes kind of circular in a way like you're saying uh, that you use certain certain group or you're supporting certain factions within Syria or you're supporting certain factions that are in line with your political goals and your political mm-hmm uh philosophies with regards to that particular country or region uh and that's something that's been going on forever and ever i mean Mm -hmm. that's you know that was part of the cold war i mean there were there were countries around the world which I i remember very distinctly that uh when the walls came down They almost went into total economic meltdown in certain countries because both the Russians and the United States didn't care about them anymore, if you will, because both of us were out of there Mm. or we weren't trying to counter the Russians in a particular country. So we were supporting the country in order to keep the spread of communism from getting into that particular country or from the Russians getting a foothold or whatnot. And they were doing the same thing. So, yes, I mean, I think you're right. I, I don't know how conspiratorial it gets, but I think overall there are always certain uh, factions that are supported uh, in order to maintain a certain political agenda uh, throughout the world.
0: Well, and it seems like where so we're I... at fulfills Wesley Clark. General Wesley Clark had a statement. It's been several years. I forget what it was, Pat or, or uh, David. It was five countries in seven years or vice versa. Like we pretty much knocked on right. pretty much most of those except for, I believe, Lebanon and um, and Iran. Is it not fulfilling kind of an agenda that was already set out, or is it as organic as they're making it appear?
1: Uh, I think it's it's organic and changing, in my opinion, and I think what you're looking at, of course, the destabilization of the Middle East by, uh, you know, you have obviously whether you're uh, Sunni, Shia, you've got that issue. Then you've got ISIS, who is uh, in an advanced stage of al-Qaeda, and they may not like each other. Then you have the hatred of uh, one country to the next Uh, you've got pakistan there in the middle of all of this uh, you know which is a country that's having issues with and they have nuclear bombs and then you have uh you know what happened in iraq and then you have iran and there as they push out their influence throughout the middle east being countered by the saudis and it becomes uh as i said i think the threats today are greater than we ever saw during the old Cold War days, where it was very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Now we have China. Of course, you can add to that in the in the South China Sea and, and whatnot. You've got Russia, who's creating problems, uh, you know, in the Ukraine and, and have their own philosophy about the world and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, China just put I sands on those tough, bases.
0: They put uh, surface air missiles right. on those now, uh, those bases that they weren't supposed right. to do. You, you,
1: Well, you just go out and if you need a base, you build an island, which I think is kind of significant. And then you claim it as your territory. So, I mean, that's (laughs) going to become a big issue. and, And it's always a hot spot because, you know, you could have fishermen. You got North Korea now, you know, and and no matter during the Cold War, no matter how serious things got, you always believed you were dealing with rational human beings who recognized that the use of nuclear weapons was not a thing. That was favorable to anybody, right. and that it could uh, result in just total annihilation, uh, one one country to the other and vice versa. But now we have people that you 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 know you suspect about about what they're thinking is how stable is the government of North Korea, how stable are those who who talk in in Iran about destroying Israel and that you know the 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 great uh, Armageddon is coming and that sort of thing. Although. Iran, you know, if you go back to Persia, is a very stable, influential, educated populace. So it's interesting what's going on there.
0: Well, you got Kim Jong-un taking out his brother, Kim Jong-nam, down in Malaysia, which was an <laughs> yeah. interesting little hit, caught on video, and then they go in and try to take his body and come to find out they use right. some kind of VX, some kind of liquid VX uh, nerve agent to take him and out. Like, hand, it's crazy. And painted
1: on the hands of women or something. So, I mean, you know... What are the your thoughts on that? People in, well, I... I i don't I, what are you, you talking know, about unstable outrageous. <laughs> unstable it, north it's, korea racist yeah it's ridiculous you run around poisoning people of course putin's accused of doing that for political opponents sure. and also media types and whatnot and uh it's outrageous i mean it makes no sense whatsoever but
0: but that's my point
1: you're dealing with people who are not necessarily thinking rationally
0: altogether there
1: and and then when and then if you give them nuclear weapons On top of it, it creates a a big problem that you have to deal with. And then it becomes necessary to have certain you have to have allies and you you need the help of the Chinese. And uh, so the world becomes it's a situation where everybody's greatly intertwined with each other and we still have our own agendas and our own uh, our own things that we're interested in. So uh, but you know, it's like I think we're hearing now, you know, peace through force or peace through our military. The stronger it is, the better. Hopefully never having to use any, our military, which is I think everybody would appreciate.
0: Well, I think our last show I mentioned to Pat and I asked, you know, do because of that interdependency we all have, Does is that the big, huge deterrent for the big war? There might be your small skirmishes, but, I mean, haven't we got kind of to the point where we're so interdependent, where we're not yeah. mutually assured destruction is not so assured?
1: Yeah, isn't that a great point you make? I mean, that uh, I always think that how in this day and age can we possibly have environments where, you know, we would have wars or we would have uh, that type of stuff? We all know the realities of the world and, and what's going on, and and we know in the concepts of globalization, which uh, you're never going to put that toothpaste back in the tube. I mean, right. we are intertwined throughout the world, but at the same time, we have our own interests to protect. I think that's one of the themes of President Trump. Uh, Yes, we can have trade deals, but they have to be in the interests of both parties and that sort of thing. But globalization is not going to go away. And you're right. The more entwined we become, more or less, it kind of says, why in the heck would we ever go to war with China, for example, or Russia, when we're so dependent upon one another economically, if nothing else, in order to, uh, to, you know, sustain the type of growth that we want within our own population. so uh, And I think in the long run, that's where it goes. Unfortunately, uh, for example, I remember, you know, you probably remember reading The World is Flat and whatnot <laughs> and, and the great concept of globalization, and, and that's fine. But what, what's forgotten in there is nationalism and religion, which are two strong motivating factors that drive certain groups around the world. Yeah. Not always in a positive direction.
0: <laughs> what are your thoughts? I mean, like you said, it's developing, and I'm quite startled, quite frankly, the last, what, two months? Um, just the kind of um, the repeated death after death of, of Russian diplomats. You had the one in, in Turkey. You had the UN's uh, ambassador to, to Russia the other day, pretty prominent guy, and then a couple lower-level guys found in some apartment somewhere. What is going on? Is the covort war well, taking place right before our eyes, <laughs> And they're, you know? What's happening? Uh,
1: pro- uh, well, I think most of those deaths were probably natural. I mean, uh, you know, they were heart attacks or whatever. Uh, to get into each situation, you'd have to look at, you know, what is, is it a person that uh, Putin would find not to be in his best interest or something like that? But I think most of the diplomatic types. Uh, that have died were probably of natural causes.
0: Well, the gentleman who was shot in Ankara. Did, uh, the... Too much vodka. Too much vodka. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're, if, you know.
1: If you're, and they do have the best vodka in the world. I mean, as as you talk about, the world changes. Uh, in my last couple of years as assistant director, we had uh, Christmas dinner at the Russian embassy, which was, which was tremendous and some of the best vodka I ever tasted uh, that the Russians could provide. But the world changes in that regard um but yeah i mean i think most of them if you're shot obviously it wasn't a heart attack and then you have to look at the motivation behind that you know putin exists uh and he has he 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 has the the kgb which is now as i said the fsb and the s and the svr which he recognizes is extremely important for him to stay in power and are one of the pillars that hold him up uh and he was an fsb officer. He was in charge of the FSB in, in in Moscow and that. So he knows the power that that agency can bring to him uh, and help him stay in power. At the same time, the oligarchs are in place and he has to keep the oligarchs in line mm. because they can cause him tremendous problems. Uh, you know, and as long as they're giving him money and everybody's happy and they're making money and he's making money, everybody's happy and whatnot. So uh, it, it's it's all a. Uh, you know political and a thing one thing about putin that you you have to remember and i get people get all excited when if, if president trump says i have respect for the man i i can i can understand i think i can understand what he's saying because the people that i worked against within the kgb the people who ran the american desk i knew very well by name not personally Uh, I had tremendous respect for them for the operations they ran. Like we said earlier in this in this conversation, uh, those who ran the operations into the political uh, situation in America are probably being rewarded in the Kremlin for success. So as a counterintelligence person, I could look at what my counterparts in the Kremlin were doing operationally and have tremendous respect for them but still hate them or dislike them to no end because of what they stood for and what their political concepts were. So there's kind of a difference in a line there that has to be
2: drawn. Right. And speaking, you know, you bring up Trump and what he's dealing with, you know, during his campaign saying that, you know, not only did he respect him, but, you know, could could see negotiating with Russia and making things better between the two nations And and, you know, our mainstream media going off on Trump about, you know, a so-called friendship with them and, and things like that. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, well, it's really not a bad idea to at least get along with a superpower. Well, they might not be right. a superpower on our level anymore, but still, um, to avoid a you know, war and actually get along with them isn't a bad thing.
1: Yeah, Pat, you make a great point. There's one country in the world that can destroy us, and that's Russia. All right, so why, why would you not want to at least have legitimate uh, relationships with them? at least in a point, at least in a level where you can have open discussions when issues arise that can be handled through diplomacy and not through, if you will, war or military action. I don't see anything wrong with that. There's nothing, as long as you're doing it with your eyes wide open. Right. Just like President Trump talks about having legitimate okay. trade deals where they're equal on both sides, that's the same way you would. You, I would say you would negotiate uh, politically with the Russians, knowing full well you have your eyes wide open, you know what's what you're doing, uh, you're not rolling over and just giving them anything they want, uh, and you're you're protecting the interests of the United States. I think there's I don't see anything wrong
2: with doing that.
0: Well and then the media right. like Pat and says that being said Yeah sorry, go ahead Pat. That, that being
2: sorry, that being said, Putin's Putin's obviously not a great guy. He's done some pretty horrible things. But um right. you know, when you look at the situation in the Ukraine where, you know Many would argue that that it was the uh, European Union bankers who, you know, with a financial takeover of, of the Ukraine because of you know all the resources there, uh, with the European Union having having so many problems financially, um, and then NATO forces and some U.S. forces even conducting war readiness drills on Russia's border. I mean, if, if Russia was doing that with Mexican forces on our border, there'd be some serious problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I if, well. That's another good point. Sometimes when you look at situations, and I know our our diplomats do it and they do it well, is you have to look at you have to look at things through the eyes of the other person. And, and okay, so if if President Trump's smart, he says, all right, Putin. We may not like Putin, and Putin is a terrible person. All right, but he is their president. He, I mean, he is the head of Russia. Uh, he's got an 85 percent approval rating. All right, now that's pretty good. How uh, you can say, oh, they only have one ball, only one person, or elections aren't free, all that—that's fine. But there's something that Putin's doing that his people like, and part of it may be nationalistic. He may believe he can bring back the old Soviet Union, which is never going to happen. But at the same time, like you're suggesting, Pat, you have to look at it from their perspective. The Russians are very paranoid. They believe, they'll, they'll probably believe to this day that we're still going to invade them coming over the planes from, from Germany and whatnot, hmm. and that that's going to happen, and that's something they have to be concerned about. So from their perspective, now I'm not saying this is right now, when they see a NATO encroachment or missile systems being put in place in Poland or whatever, from their perspective, they see that as a threat, all right? Is it? It's defensive. We say it's defensive on our part, but you have to look at where they're coming from. The Crimea, which they invaded and took over. You know, there's this history that goes back hundreds of years there that the Russians deal with. So you have to understand that. We don't have to agree with it. We don't have to agree with anything Putin does. But I think you have to understand where he's coming from if you're going to deal with it in a very effective way.
2: Yeah, and I think the, I think the respect that Trump has for, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think the respect that Trump has for Putin is based on both their, I think, both their fight against globalism, to be honest with you, more nationalistic. And wanting to keep national independence and sovereignty for both their nations.
1: Yeah, probably. And then you, you can see how this all swirls together, though, right? So you have all this information coming out, which I think was the false dossier. Then you have this information about supposedly people in a Trump campaign. We're dealing directly with the Russians in order to influence the campaign and to help Trump, which probably is bogus also. That seems to be what's coming out now from the intelligence community. And now you put that in with when he says something about Putin and I have respect for the man. I don't know how we're going to get along, but I, I have a respect for him. Okay, that's sort of like the respect I had for my counterparts in the KGB. That doesn't mean you right. like him or you agree with his philosophy or his politics or anything like that. But what happens now is you put together all of these conspiracies that oh yeah uh, Trump must I mean people are uh, can get outrageous Trump must be an agent of the KGB. I, know, I, I mean, Right. I, I mean, come on. I mean, give give me a break. I mean, uh, after a while, you just shake your head and you go, Can any rational human being really? You don't have to like the president. You don't have to politically be on his side. But can uh, can you rationally come to that conclusion? And think of yourself as an intelligent person. Uh, I just don't they think do. so, having dealt in Maybe. this world for so long. I know they do. I know. I mean, it's just crazy.
0: Well, it's like, not have to like the
1: Like Pat was saying,
0: like the, the media would have jumped on Pat. Like the level of intellectual dishonesty, uh, you know, there's a video of, of Obama in 2012 telling telling Medvedev when I get in, it'll be more flexible, you know, chill out, it's cool. Same thing, same context, same-based right. conversation. <laughs> And in the, the whole uh, Trump, Trump press conference the other day, they said the press did exactly what he said they were going to do, say he was on unhinged or whatever. He just pretty much broke it off. He was right. Hillary Clinton, through the Clinton Foundation, gives uranium one, 10%, 20% of our uranium. Like, where's the news on that? Why is that unhinged? Why is that crazy? They did.
1: Right. And, and, and I'll tell you, I don't think Obama was necessarily wrong in what he was saying either. What he was saying is maybe we can negotiate on a different plane after the election. Uh, I don't, you know, it it all gets blown out of context in a political environment that we've come to now, where it's just almost filled with hate from one side to the other. And there's no, no, you know, no common ground where, where people can come together. I think Pat hit on it. For example, what everybody should be on a common ground to say that good relations with Russia would be a good thing. All right. Not not. Silly, not not like I think we got hoodwinked in Iran, but real solid negotiations that benefit both of us, that keep the world safe, that keep us from being enemies. What's wrong with that? I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, understanding Putin is not a good person, I get all that. But the Rush all the Russian people aren't aren't bad people. In fact, if you meet the Russians, they're great people. Pat would love to party with them.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So we, that Pat, Pat, Pat and I were involved in uh, mixed martial arts, and when I got involved in it, you know, uh, I used to think that the guy on the bottom was losing, and it took a long time for Pat to teach me that the guy on the bottom <laughs> could be winning. So it shows you where I was coming from in that particular environment.
2: Well, we had a lot of fun, I know that. But, uh, you know, when you bring up Obama, you know, now we're getting, and, and uh, we won't keep you too much longer, I know you're a busy guy, but, um, you know, Soros comes up, you know, with his funding of, of uh, MoveOn.org and a lot of other organizations, left-wing organizations, a lot of busing in demonstrators that, that end up causing problems and, and burning buildings and doing things. And now Obama's own website has his uh, the the his bearing his own name, and then also the OFA, which is um, uh, Organized for Action, which is, has been training people to go to all these town halls and, and scream down all of our politicians who are going home to meet with their constituents and things, and, and this shadow government talk, which, which you know, obviously there's leaks coming out early in, in Trump's administration. You know, are these leftovers from, from Obama's administration doing this stuff? You know, there's a lot of chaos being caused on purpose, and, and I guess my question is with these people doing this stuff deliberately and, and wreaking havoc uh, in our country, I mean, can a guy like Soros – um, eventually be charged if this stuff is is true and and having an ass- his assets frozen things like yeah. that
1: now i i mean it, you get into the political environment and and you have to look for particular violations of the law that somebody would commit and when you get into political influence and and that sort of thing i think it becomes very difficult to do that uh it, the whole thing i mean what you're hitting on now here is and it might go to both sides of the aisle that the political discourse has become so outrageous between groups. I mean, you, you can't sit down and, and and seeing these things when congressmen are going back to their districts and 100 people come in and they're ranting and raving and screaming and hollering. I mean, if you have legitimate issues, you can't sit there and raise your hand and ask the politician or your representative to give you an honest answer about a concern you have, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And instead, we're getting to the point where we see basically anarchists out there and And whether it's Berkeley or I was at the inauguration and um, you have demonstrators that are breaking windows and dressed in black. And and if they're true anarchists, they don't believe in anything except total destruction and chaos. And unfortunately, uh, we've gotten to the point where this is what's being being pushed out. It's not political discourse that's professional and intelligent and reasonable. And that benefits the United States. It becomes a, a what I think it is. Is It's a, a quest for power and maintaining power, and it has nothing to do with with the good of, of people or the American people or the great uh, political uh, establishments that we have or dialogue that we can have. And you need to have opposition parties, and you need to have people to come and argue with each other, and you need to be able to come to a, a consensus in the middle of the road somewhere and, and put out what's good for the American people. That That's true. I mean, that's what we need. But when you see this other stuff, whether you can charge them or not, or any group for funding, that gets really murky
2: and really difficult. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jeff, you got anything more for
0: Dave? Man, are cool. you oh, kidding Dave. me? I could talk this man's ear off for hours and hours, but I know that's just not quite possible. I wanted to ask you a little bit on, on, on Pizzagate slash human trafficking. It seems like Donald Trump's kind of uh, oh, yeah. putting the smackdown on the human trafficking. What are your thoughts? I mean, of course, they called that fake news. Uh, my final question: what are, you, what are your thoughts on the um, on that PizzaGate human trafficking? It seems like it's everywhere, and it involves a lot of well, high um, up people. Uh,
1: yeah, well, uh, two two different things here. One is, of course, a conspiracy theory, or or uh, you know, I think if you're alluding to the, the person who went after the pizza parlor that sure. supposedly Hillary was involved, and in. that's nonsense. That's total nonsense. I mean, but if you talk about human trafficking. That's a whole other issue that is extremely serious around the world. That uh, young women, children uh, are being victimized and put into this trafficking of human of human beings, and that that is a a serious problem and a serious criminal problem and one that has to be dealt with very seriously, even in this country as well as around the world. I mean, but then when you take it to a level where you come up with You know, I think there's more conspiracy theories out there today than there's ever been about anything. Right. And I mean, no matter what your political leaning is, uh, like I said, you have to come to a point with some of these stories where any rational human being would say, look, I may not like the person, but this is really over the top. And uh, so human trafficking, serious, serious problem. Uh, I mean, just just outrageous what goes on around the world, uh, even in this day and age. And it's something that has to be dealt with. As we dealt with by the FBI and others, so uh, that's very, very serious.
0: Quite a few arrests, because man. Very, several hundred so serious. far right. in the Trump administration. We've had several yep. hundred state to state, and I'm digging that. Yeah, I, I wonder, uh, you know,
2: with the surprise
0: the yeah,
1: with with and there's kids. There's kids involved.
0: I know. There's I'm a parent, man. It it sickens me as a parent, as a human being, but as a parent right. too. Oh, no, absolutely, well, absolutely.
2: With, absolutely. with uh, you know, any correlation between it just seems. The timing of it, with Anthony Weiner's laptop being seized, things like that, and then all of a sudden, hundreds of arrests going on everywhere. Not not that long afterward, you know, you wonder if there's any correlation there. And then also, uh, you know, I don't believe I don't believe Hillary I don't believe Hillary was involved in in any of this yeah. child trafficking or any any of this stuff. But I do find it interesting that Bill Clinton spent I don't know twenty some flights to uh, Jeffrey Epstein's island on on the Lolita <laughs> Express, which is it's a little intriguing to me
0: not to mention the yeah. Podesta no, emails I'll I'll,
1: leave I'll give you that it's intriguing <laughs> I don't, but I don't have any insight <laughs> I don't have any any factual information on that right but okay. I, I'll just add a, a final thing on human trafficking you know I, when I had a violent crime squad in in San Francisco we had crimes against children and what you see going on is, is just uh some of the worst of the worst and and how people can deal in that environment is way beyond me these are people who definitely should be locked up for the rest of their life for the things they do to children. It's just mind-boggling, total Agree. perversion.
0: Agree. My final question, and I'm going to let you slide the pad unless you have another one. How on point are the Bourne movies, or off point are the Bourne movies? <laughs> are there treadstones uh, out there, sir? Are there Operation Treadstones?
1: First of all, I love the Bourne movies. Uh, I think that you know when you. Are there Treadstones out there? Are there, there, there are operations everywhere around the world, but whether or not they're rogue operations, on uh, that I would disagree with. Little groups within the uh, CIA or wherever that run their own little operations, no. But are there high-end operations that go to uh, amazing things around the world? Yes.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Good stuff,
2: good stuff. I don't have any more questions. We've kept him for an hour. Absolutely. I think it's been a a great, entertaining hour, very informational.
0: Man, ladies and gentlemen, 30-plus years as a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Thank you, A, so much for your service, sir. And, again, taking so much time for this interview, Mr. David Zadie, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Thanks, David. My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. There will be more.